You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. You're listening to the Ask the Sheikh program or Ask the Sheikha program in this case. And this is the program in English that goes out every Monday to Thursday from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock on Radio Ramadan 365. We are on 87.7 FM and we're also on Medium Wave 1530 and in Digital Radio as well. If you have any questions that you'd like to pose to any of our guests that come onto the show, uh, either on this show or the coming uh, weeks, do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter or uh, by email. So any questions that you send in or any thoughts or any queries, anything you have at all on Islamic topics, uh, send them in, we'll collect them together and then we'll pose them at the next opportunity. Uh, first of all, let me introduce you to our guest today is Ustada Khadija. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum, Ustada. I'm just going to introduce you very quickly for the listeners and then we'll cover our topic for today, which is Islamic education. I think this is a topic which uh, is uh, very close to all of our hearts, especially for people who have families and especially who are trying to educate their children. Uh, but in any case, let's talk about Islamic uh, education in general. But uh, a brief bio about yourself then. So you're originally from Dagestan and you were born and raised in Glasgow in Scotland and you began your Islamic studies yeah. with... Uh, some local scholars before going to Yemen, uh, where you spent five years under uh, teaching and studying with uh, Habib Omar, mashallah. Um, and on returning to the UK at the end of 2017, then you've been get, you began to teach at the Madrasa Zil Quran in Glasgow, and you've been the project manager for the Rai Syllabus for Schools, and you're still teaching there then at the Madrasa. Yes, alhamdulillah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, amongst, uh, amongst other projects as well then. Um, so yeah, how, the, how do you, how do you find uh, teaching children as opposed to teaching adults? Um, to be honest, like I, I love teaching children because I do find that when you teach kids, mm-hmm. um, you find a part of yourself in each and each and every one of them. Um, and I remember from my time uh, studying in Yemen, some of the scholars used to say that. Um, to teach kids was just such a blessing because like you get to watch them grow in front of you sometimes as opposed to adults so um, kind of see them every time you see them they kind of change a little bit and they kind of grow a little bit more so it's always really exciting to watch them. Subhanallah it's an amazing amazing feeling when uh, they learn something and then you you realize that subhanallah they're they're picking up so much Um, but when it comes to teaching uh, adults as well so it's a case of um, You know, I, w- I would say that the difference maybe is that the fact that children are more inquisitive. I think they're a bit more uh, ready to accept everything that you're saying. Is that is, you find that as well? Are you teaching secondary school level? So I'm teaching like so my youngest students are maybe like eight years old, and my oldest students are like eighteen, nineteen. Um, so okay. I have kind of like a, a very um, age range, but you kind of tend to find like the kids a little bit. They'll ask you questions that. The adults don't think about asking you like um, <laughs> there's just like sometimes you come into class and then they start asking you questions and you just like where did that come from yeah. <laughs> but like I, I, alhamdulillah sometimes you tend to find um with adults a little bit maybe they've had like a previous idea of what it kind of should be and sometimes Uh, they're committed to that idea so sometimes uh, for the adults you need to spend actually a little bit more time with them 
actually. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I found personally for myself, like with my older kids that I teach. Um, but alhamdulillah, like it's a blessing like to teach them all. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to uh, education and especially Islamic education, I mean, what, what, what do you feel that, why is it so important for us to teach our kids and maybe send them into um, madrasas and to, into classes such as the ones that you teach? Why is it, why is it so important in Islam? I mean, I think like for myself personally and in an, in an Islamic viewpoint, these classes are vitally important because it's not just an either or situation because sometimes um, as Muslims, we maybe fall into that idea of thinking um, that either you study secular studies or you study your Islamic studies, mm-hmm. when actually there should be a balance between the two of them. Like secular studies is important, but also as well, Islamic studies is just as important as your secular studies because right. it's not like as, as much as there's aspects of Islam which is kind of secular in nature, for instance, like going through the books with a teacher and having um, been tested by the end of that book and, and so forth. Um, part of like this Islam, especially in teaching or in learning it, is learning how to engage with Allah and learning how to function as a Muslim. So it's like that uh, moral compass for your life and your moral compass kind of determines what kind of actions you take as you get older uh, and you grow up. So it's not just about, okay, we've learned how to read Quran and we've learned how to pray, like we've learned how to do like the practical things. It's also about learning how to engage with Allah, learning how to function as a Muslim um, and being rooted in your deen because this is also part of your success, even uh, in a secular field as well, that having that balance it helps you um, maybe deal with things a bit better, especially in terms of your work life, your personal life. Um, so it's about having that whole that whole balance and that completion of both your secular and your dean. It's very good. I mean, do you do you find that see the parents of the children that you teach? Do you find that they? I mean, I suppose because they're sending the children to you to to learn, they do value the Islamic education side of things. But uh, from my experience, um, and I don't know if this is the same for yourself, a lot of parents, sadly, they put so much emphasis on their schoolwork and on um, their academic side of things, which is, which is, you know, understandable, that their Islamic studies kind of gets put on the back burner a little bit. Do you find that uh, it's not as valued as much amongst parents? Um, I think so, like... Alhamdulillah, like, I've had the experience of meeting, like, really amazing parents who have taken a very active role in their children's Islamic education Um, but also unfortunately um, I have also met other parents who it's just kind of that attitude like well it's it's just madrasa like what does it kind of matter and you've had maybe some other parents who have put a lot of pressure like on their kids to um, when it comes to like exams and like madrasa and stuff, like they've put a, a lot of pressure on their kids that they should get a hundred percent in in this and like they should have that. And 
like, I've seen myself give some kids their exam results back and mm. they've been like, oh no, we didn't get 100%. Um, so there's this kind of like confusion. Right. There's this kind of like maybe not confusion or or misunderstanding that somehow uh, either Islam should be treated as a purely secular exercise or it doesn't matter at all. Right. So I've seen some of that um, come up time and time again. Okay, very good. We have uh, on our show today as the Sheikha program. We have Ustada Khadija Afendi, um, who is joining us from Glasgow, and she's going to be answering questions and any thoughts that you have on Islamic education. Uh, if there's anything that you want to raise from having listened to the program or any other questions on any other topics that we're going to be covering in the next uh, few weeks, just Facebook or Twitter, or you can email in the questions to us and we'll get them into the studio and then pose them to our guests as they come on to the show. We've been talking about the importance of Islamic education and especially about teaching children. I think that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And what is the, um, can I ask what the prophetic model of teaching children is then? I mean, how do you think Prophet would have gone about teaching children? So there is a kind of prophetic model there. Um, and that prophetic model is like in three stages. So your first stage comes in Turbiya. And um, Turbiya is uh, almost like the raising of children. It's almost um, like the experience that you give them as in uh, manners, uh, adab and, and different things like that. So there's kind of like this first stage is like Turbiya. Right. Get them used to that idea of how we kind of behave like in an Islamic manner. And then the second uh, stage of that is Tadib. And Tadib is more about discipline, but not discipline as in, um, you know, kind of that kind of corporal sort of discipline, the idea of corporal discipline. It's about kind of gently getting them in the way, uh, you know, we pray at certain times or this is how like we should behave in certain situations. So there's like Tarbiya and Tadib. And then the third is uh, Tahlim. And Tahlim is, you know, that's when you start going into the, you know, the kind of details of the Islam. So you kind of start off and you're teaching them how to pray and you're teaching them how to make wudu and um, you're teaching them different things about like Allah, like Aqeedah and different Mm-hmm. Islamic sciences, so it kind of comes in stages, right? Um, in terms of that. And what what kind of age do you think uh, you would start? I mean, a lot of uh, parents uh, start sending their children at quite a young age, maybe about mm-hmm. five, six years old. Even uh, they start in the house, and then maybe they'd send them to madrasa to start learning Quran. I mean, what what kind of age do you think that we should start teaching children Islamic uh, education? Mm, technically, the teaching of Islamic education literally starts from the moment they're born in the sense of when they're really young. So even in a stage where they're not talking, what the examples I would see from my teachers um, with their own children is how they would act around their children. So even very small children, like you've got one-year-olds, two-year-olds, the way they kind of act around their children um, because even though they don't maybe understand like verbal education at that point, they do take a lot in. So as they start to get older, like three, four and five, um, 
it's very important that you kind of keep that going. So at first, it's more about kind of showing them how to be rather than sitting them down and going through Alif Bata or um, going through that kind of formal, you know, this is how you pray, this is how you make wudu. So it really starts from the moment they're born. And then when they get to about four or five, that's when you start kind of adding in little extra bits but a lot of the time um, the kids pick up on how you behave as a parent or how you behave as a teacher and that teaches them a lot about the kind of idea of what Islam is because at that stage you're giving them the idea of what Islam is until they get old enough to kind of grasp what Islam is. Okay and that well yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, I think it's important to realise that as well, that it's not just a case of, you know, sending them over to the madrasa and that they'll take care of everything. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you're right, it has to it has to start at home. So say, say for example, parents who are, um, who have got younger kids and, you know, we'll get on to the, the older kids and adults in a minute, but when it comes to teaching them at home, I mean, what, what kind of things, uh, I know you mentioned du'as and things, but uh, is there any like books that you can recommend? Is there any kind of, you know, simple things that kids can, especially at this time when everyone's in lockdown at home, I think people are trying to kind of engage a lot more with their kids in terms of their education. Uh, so when it comes to Islamic education, yeah. what kind of things would you recommend? So this is where the kind of first part of tarbiyah comes in, um, that kind of first stage. So like in reading stories to them, you, you know, you've got um, like Quran stories for kids, Sira stories for kids um, and, you know, stories of the prophets for kids. And even if you look online, you have these kind of uh, Islamic style um, colouring in books, which to take to do with, like, you know, the stories of the prophets or um, stories of, you know, um, Yudhik scholars in Islam from a very kind of young age. And I've seen that um, being utilised as well. Um, with the kind of younger, younger kids, and um, you know, there's the hadith, not the hadith, but the saying of Sayyidina Ali anhu, who says like, you know, your first kind of seven years with the child, it's about kind of playing with them and kind of guiding them through uh, a kind of more gentle uh, experience. So as in like reading books with them or playing games with them or um, one of the things that they used to do in Yemen with the kids is when it came to like um, Hajj time, what they do is they would um, make like a kind of mini Kaaba and kind of dress the kids up in like mini Ihram and stuff and get them, the, get them through the idea of what um, Hajj is from this like, really young age by having these kind of interactive sort of little plays and stuff for them. Um, so kind of going through that at a really young age because it's also about at that young age um, building that love for the Dean as well because at that age, um, you know, they say that uh, kids are born in like Fitra. So at that kind of age, it's like they already know um, Allah, so it's like building upon that and um, getting them to kind of interact in that sort of way, if that makes sense. No, no, it does, it does. And well, one thing I wanted to um, ask you about as well is just the fact that, you know, there's a lot of parents out there who, you know, they wish the best for their children, but they do end up being quite 
um, forceful. And so you mentioned about the fact that in the early years they should be taught how to play and to uh, have fun and enjoy their game. But then uh, a lot of parents, you know, find it difficult to get that balance. So, I mean, what advice would you give to somebody who maybe wants, um, you know, to really push their children towards memorization of Quran or uh, maybe just reading their Arabic and finishing the Quran? Um, what advice would you give to parents who are maybe a bit too kind of under pressure themselves? I mean, I think the thing to remember, like, as a parent or even as a teacher, um, is that it's a step-by-step -step process. So, you know, like, maybe if you really want your child to do memorization, like, they're not, they're not going to become hafiz overnight, <laughs> you know. So it's that kind of, because every child has a different way of learning. And some children find it more difficult, some children find it easy. So the thing that I would kind of say with parents is like, take it step by step, like kind of see how your child learns, because this is also important for their secular studies as well, to see how your child learns. And, you know, and even if you are like a madrasa teacher and you're teaching like, you know, your Alif Bata's and memorization of Quran, is to kind of get to know that child as well. So a part of getting to know that child is getting to know how they learn and if they're a little bit slower. If they're a little bit slower, it's okay. It's right. fine. It's about building their confidence as well because what will tend to happen if you kind of, if you force it too much, mm -hmm. they will break. And then if they break, they won't want to come back to it. And that's maybe sometimes what the issue has been maybe for previous generations uh, that maybe feel like they disconnect from their being because maybe they felt they were forced into it. Because if you're kind of forced or if you're taught to kind of like feel this thing, you're not going to come towards it or you're going to feel like you can't achieve it. And sometimes because of this kind of secular, this kind of idea of secularization where it's like your, your ability or your value is based on how well you do your exams or how well or how quickly you catch up on a particular subject. And Islamically speaking, it's not, it's not really the same. So when it comes to like dealing with children and getting them to do their memorization and stuff, it's very much a step-by-step -step process because you want them to love the Quran as much as you want them to memorize it. So it's really important to, to maybe take a step-by-step -step process and, you know, be gentle on yourself as a parent because as a parent, it can be very stressful because you want nothing but the best for your child. You want your child to excel. Um, even myself for a teacher, I look at my children and I want them to become the best possible Muslims. Like my goal, the goal that I kind of set is that, you know, every child that I teach, inshallah, will get to know Allah. So my that, that's kind of like my goal. And obviously as parents, they all have their own personal goals, but it's about kind of being kind to yourself as a parent, mm -hmm. but also as well remembering that this child that you're molding, you want to mold them in the way of Allah. You want them to love the Quran. You want them to love their deen. So it's a very step 
step-by-step process. If you have a child who's maybe they have learning difficulties or they're a bit slower kind of in the uptake, then that is fine. Okay, so um, on the show today on the Ask the Sheikha programme, we have um, Sheikha Khadija who's talking about Islamic education. And in the first part of the show, we've talked about uh, a lot of things. We've talked about um, younger children and what you should teach them as parents at home. We've talked, uh, talked about uh, their learning of Quran and how to get them started into that, and especially being the best example at home. Um, and you were saying, uh, Sister Khadija, just before uh, we pause, that um, it's important to recognize some children are maybe slower at picking up um, certain things and maybe they have learning difficulties. I mean, how do you deal with that, that kind of situation or those kind of children? Um, so, personally, myself, if I have a child who has kind of learning difficulties, um, I try to kind of go over stuff with them a little bit more or spend a little bit more time with them. And it is very important to um, be honest with that, that child as well. Um, but also, as well, um, sometimes what I have um, recognized as uh, when kids are enrolling uh, when children when parents are enrolling their children uh, and you have this kind of um, part in the application form asks if the child has any learning difficulties some parents um, some parents are kind of in denial of their child's um, learning difficulties as if it's like, a, like as if it's like a really bad thing um, but Essentially, like it's not if your child has learning difficulties, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> like you know, I think it's very important to remember that. And personally, myself, if I have a child who has learning difficulties, because I have um, some children as well in my class that have um, like ADHD, for instance, or I have uh, I have one child who's um, like mildly autistic as well in my class. Oh. I think it's very important, like as a teacher, not to look at all these children as just the same, because each child that you deal with is unique. So, and one of the ways we kind of doing that is kind of getting to know each child that you teach. And if you do recognise um, that there may be some issue, maybe going over some extra. Um, time with them going over going over it again in maybe a different way or giving them extra time like to like sit their tests for example like the kind of child that I have in one of my classes um he's you know he's very dyslexic so when it comes to kind of like exams and stuff you know instead of him sitting there and kind of not knowing what to do or, or what to write in the exam, you know, you have like a scribe. I try to, I try to like have him like sit with someone who can read the questions out to him, and he can answer. You know, and he he can answer those questions, um, or spend extra time with with them, which tends to be how I try to do it as a teacher. Um, um, because it, it's important as well that those children who may be a bit slower or maybe have learning difficulties mm -hmm. 
get to feel that same experience as maybe the other kids who are like maybe a bit more sharper or get to like feel that they have not been excluded from this Islam because maybe they don't pick it up in the same way. Yeah, excellent points, excellent points. Thank you so much. Uh, we have Ustada Khadija with us uh, for today's Asta Sheikha program. We're covering Islamic education. And we've talked a lot about the younger kids, uh, Ustada. One of the things that I wanted to move on to is this. Even the kids get older and, uh, you know, in the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, where uh, he mentions, yeah. I think it is, that at the age of about seven, that you should start, um, you know, uh, getting them to pray. I mean, it's easier yeah. said than done. How would you encourage parents mm-hmm. to maybe... Um, who are struggling with getting their seven, eight, nine-year-olds uh, or even older uh, to actually pray on time and everything. So how would you encourage that as a parent? I mean, I, I think like if you have younger kids right now, the best thing you can do mm-hmm. is get them to come and pray with you, even if it's not compulsory on them, but get them kind of into that idea. So it's like... Uh, it's best to kind of start earlier so you don't have that issue of, oh, I don't want to pray, or getting them to pray on time. So I think, like, if you do at the moment, if you have younger children who may be kind of under that age of where prayer is compulsory upon them, is, you know, when you get up to pray, you take them up to pray as well. And they may know the prayer, but even just getting them to stand next to you and like they'll copy you because a lot of the time children really do witness everything like a mistake that a person can make is thinking that a child does not see that like you know seven eight or even younger they see everything they literally they watch you like a hawk like and I've experienced this with my younger kids and my kind of slightly older kids as well in the classroom me we watch you <laughs> like so you know a lot of that is maybe showing them rather than kind of pushing them and you know kind of nagging at them to get up because the more you kind of nag at the kids mm-hmm the kind of less they're inclined to do it. Of course, there is kind of like, yeah, you have to kind of draw a line. You know, you can't just kind of let them kind of do whatever they want. But most of the time, like, when they see you mm-hmm. actively take a role in participating in your, in your prayer, then they will also follow that. So, so when you get up to pray, you take them with you. You're like, no, like, come on, we're going to do this together. You know, um, pray like, or maybe like pray together as a family if you can do that, um, and also as well, just like giving them encouragement, like especially the kind of eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds and stuff, to kind of give them that encouragement because they start to that that kind of eight and nine-year-old is like. Uh, and kind of like thick terms, you call that like the age of discernment. So when you get to eight and nine, it's when they start kind of realizing what's right and what's wrong. Right. So if you have started from when they were younger, you're kind of building upon that, which they already kind of know, which is already kind of pre and built in them. Um, but if you're starting right now from the age of eight, um, it's very important that you you kind of do what you want 
what you want me to do, you have to be doing yourself also. Right, because okay, So on the program today, we have Ustada uh, Khadija, and we'll be talking about younger children and talking about the importance of Islamic education. And Ustada, uh, you were just mentioning about the fact that parents have to set an example to the children rather than just, say, push them into the madrasa and just um, get a Quran tutor online or something like that. You're saying that the best thing is to be an example for the kids. Um, and I was just wondering how you would then continue to be an example when the kids get a little bit older. So say, for example, um, they're getting to university age and they want to maybe pursue their Islamic studies or Arabic um, a little bit more. How, how, would, how can parents uh, come to terms with the idea that their children might want to learn a bit more about Islam? I think um, the most important thing to remember that when it comes to like secular studies and Islamic studies, it's not an either or situation because sometimes people think either you choose secular studies or you choose Islamic studies or you do Islamic studies because you weren't bright enough to do secular studies, which is kind of like, it's kind of a bit of a myth that kind of people kind of hold on to. Like you can study Islamic studies as well as having um, your your secular studies, um, even for myself, like I went to university, and but I also um, had my Islamic studies, and you know you'll find um, a lot of like the great scholars, and even our local scholars, like you know uh, Sheikh Amr or, or Sheikh Rizwan, also went to university and pursued their Islamic studies. So it's not it's not that kind of either or. So, so I think um, that some people kind of think, well, maybe I'll just leave it because I want to focus on the dean. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if that's truly what's in your heart, then, you know, that's kind of fair enough. But it, you have to remember as well, you, you can do both. You can, it is possible to do both. Um, and I think that's important to remember because there has to be a balance. Okay. As well. Now, you, you mentioned, uh, Sada, you mentioned the fact that there are some local scholars in Glasgow, and I'm, I'm sure the people listening anywhere in the country or anywhere around the world, there are local scholars that you can go to. Um, if a person really wants to go and pursue their Arabic, like say, for example, um, is there anywhere in the world that you would recommend in terms of traveling abroad? Or do you think that um, there are so many kind of scholars at home that there's no need to travel uh, anymore these days? Well, what's your opinion on that? Um. Well, like, alhamdulillah, we do have a lot of scholars, but if you're talking about in terms of like Arabic language, um, personally, myself, in that case, if you talk just purely on the Arabic alone, um, and you could learn Arabic grammar here, that's like not an issue. We have so many scholars, mashallah, who are proficient in teaching Arabic grammar. But in terms of like understanding and speaking and, and probably reading and writing, I'd probably say that um, immersion courses are the best. So like going to somewhere like Egypt who do have um, the best uh, facilities in terms of teaching non-native speakers or uh, Arabic and teaching them the grammar as well. And you get a more kind of fuller understanding. Um, But that's just basically because you know, when you try to learn a language and you're not using all, all the time, you don't pick it up as much. So, like, for myself, 
Um, I learned Arabic when I was in Yemen. So before I went to Yemen, I didn't speak any Arabic at all. Uh, I learned it all there. <laughs> so, um, so, but alhamdulillah, in that sense, it worked for me because I was in an environment where I had to use it and you constantly pick it up. Um, but that's just like maybe on the Arabic it's maybe and you can do that like if you do an immersion course you can do that in like six months a year and Um, you you were you were abroad for uh, for how many years five years five years so you would say okay that's so which is quite a big commitment for people so immersion courses in that sense uh, you you feel a little bit better and especially I was thinking as well for parents who um, want to kind of access the Quran I think this is always a question uh, amongst Muslims especially Muslims born uh, and raised in the UK they're they're always asking about the fact they want to access the Quran a little bit more now Uh, in your opinion I mean should parents or should even young adults or adults themselves who are going uh, who are are working and have families of their own uh, if they want to access the Quran would you encourage them to maybe read uh, more in English or would you encourage them to, um, you know, give up on the dream, at, uh, you know, altogether? I mean, how, how is accessing the Quran an easier way? Is there an easier way to do it? So, first of all, it's like, it's about building love of the Quran as well. So to mm-hmm. access the Quran, it's like, you need to kind of learn how to have a relationship with it because the Quran is not just a book. Like, um, so we can't just like open the book and just expect for us to kind of understand because there's so many levels and there's so much depth to the Quran. So one of the kind of ways, like starting on, even if you don't understand the Arabic or what's being recited, um, you can try and make a habit of listening to the Quran a lot if you don't know how to read the Quran. Um, And you should start to kind of, first of all, build a relationship with the Quran. So, like, you know, maybe if you read a page, two pages a day, Mm -hmm. or listen to it on a regular basis, and then kind of start to kind of look at the translation. So if you speak English, look at the English translation, uh, or also as well try and listen to like tafsir classes uh, or try and attend uh, tafsir classes because tafsir is like you know that commentary on the Quran um, I, I don't think it's something that should ever be given up like you know the thing that we need to realise as well is sometimes when it comes to Islamic knowledge or uh, we want to kind of conquer something, it's not necessarily done overnight. Because sometimes we get into this habit, it's like if we can't have it right now, then I give up. Um, So so some aspects like the Quran, which, you know, took 23 years in itself to be revealed, is is not just going to open up overnight. Maybe for some people it could happen, that's it's down to Allah, but it's about kind of building a rapport with it because it's like, it's that kind of living embodiment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's words. So it's like kind of building up on it, building that love. And then when you have that love in your heart for the Quran, you will find that, you will find the Quran itself opening up to you. So, uh, in a sense, it's like you will, you will see new things in the Quran that you've never seen before because your heart and like your being has been receptacle or receptive to it. So it's like first to get to know the Quran, have a relationship with the Quran, 
um, listen to it regularly and like you know whoever your your favourite curry may be if you have a favourite type of recitation listen to it in your favourite type of recitation attend Tufsir classes if you can um, or a lot of like I think uh, a lot of scholars especially in this month of Ramadan I've put a lot of Tufsir classes on like YouTube uh, or there's like what iSyllabus is doing like Moment Pin um, you can kind of listen to those classes as well because when, when you hear like the kind of tough seers and the kind of meaning behind it or you read um, the translation um, you can start to ha uh, have that connection and connecting your heart with it and then eventually you know you will have a relationship with the Quran inshallah. Excellent. We have Ustad Khadija with us today and we're talking about Islamic education. This is the Ask the Sheikha program. It goes out on Mondays to Thursdays, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock, and on Fridays to Sundays is the Urdu version. Uh, we've been talking about a number of different topics over the last four or five shows. And for the rest of the month as well, inshallah, we'll be having different guests and different shiokh on the program to answer your questions. If there's anything that you want to raise, any points you want to make or any questions that you might have, then you can get in touch with us over Facebook. You can tweet us or you can email us. And what we'll do is collate all your questions and then um, ask them at the, uh, to the next guest. Um, so Stadha Khadija, we talked to, uh, we've talked about a number of things. We talked about um, people being encouraged to access the Quran, about parents and how to raise their children and so forth. And just to go back to that, there was a question which was posed by one of the listeners, um, uh, which we have here. It's somebody who's asking about sports now. What they're saying is that what, what is the importance of letting children uh, play sports and focus on sports in terms of their, I mean, how is that linked to Islamic education? So if we look at the life of the Prophet Sassam, the Prophet Sassam, liked sports himself as in like obviously we're not talking like football and like rugby and stuff like that but he he liked archery he liked to swim mm -hmm. you know so there's this uh, element of uh what you would call like sacred sports and what kind of sports like the prophet himself would do um and i think you know this kind of idea that Islam is not, or Islamic education is not just contained within the books mm -hmm. itself. Because, like, you know, if you play a sport, it teaches you a lot about adab, um, or, like, good manners. For instance, like, some of the children in my classes, they play hockey or they, they, they play cricket or, you know, some of them play football. And there's a certain level of mannerisms or manners that have to be upkept. Um, in a kind of sporting environment. So a sporting environment, uh, obviously depending on the sports, like, you know, contact sports, like maybe not so much, um, but kind of, you know, sports, maybe cricket, maybe hockey or archery, uh, swimming, running, it teaches us also about, like, discipline, because there's a, a certain level of self-discipline that you need to have. And there's a certain level of like mannerisms you need to have, like um, sportsmanship, like you know how how you deal with your opposing player, how how you kind of like you know how how do you contain your anger and stuff as well. And these are all kind of like Islamic principles. If we think about it, like you know controlling one's anger, um, dealing with other people, and, and the manner in which we speak to and deal with other people. So these like you know in themselves like we find these principles being enforced islamically as well 
So it's, it's like, you know, the, the thing is about Islam, it's not just one thing, it's a whole range of things. Okay, but, and, and this is one uh, aspect of things, I think especially in the lockdown times that we have just now, we can't get out much and maybe even children aren't um, getting out to play as much or visit parks and stuff. Um, one of the things that uh, has come up is this idea of making Ramadan and making, uh, especially with Eid coming up at the end of the month, um, a, a more of a more of a special occasion for children. I mean, is it is it okay for us to kind of you know have decorations up and uh, really kind of try to make an effort in terms of uh, celebrating it at home? Yes, like you know, um, even when when I was studying in Yemen, um, when it came times like Eid and Ramadan, uh, we used to put decorations up in our school. So like okay. I kind of like I, I lived uh, like the kind of female uh, side of the school and we kind of like lived together and we would decorate when we were allowed to kind of like decorate and even like when we used to go to our teacher's house mm-hmm. for like the Eid he would invite like all the students there um, it, it would kind of like be decorated because like even Ramadan is such a special time so you know like you used to have like lights and like some like decorations like you don't have to like go all out like you don't have to um make it look like christmas or anything like yeah. that and i think yeah. this is where maybe people might feel like the complexions but the thing is you should make it special for the children especially if you're living in the west because children they go to school interact with non-muslim children None of, like, when you go to school, or, like, you know, especially in primary school and you're young and you have all these kids in your class and when it comes to Christmas time, you know, all these kids are really hyped up and, like, there's decorations and they're sending people cards and, you know, there's all this kind of excitement around this holiday as a child uh, for Christmas. And then kind of, like, Muslim kids, kind of, that's, they start to question that. Like, you know, I, I've had kids in my class who have started to come and ask me and question me, like, oh, why why can't we cel- celebrate Eid, like, in, in, in a big way, you know? And if you go to, like, the Muslim world, like, you know, you go to, like, your Arab countries and stuff, you will find that they celebrate Eid and Ramadan in a very big way because, you know, these times are so special like Ramadan is a, such a sacred month and we should put so much emphasis into you know that participation in that Ramadan and we should put so much emphasis into like celebrating Eid because you know ultimately Eid is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as, as his mercy and his as his reward for, uh, you know, his slaves fasting the month of Ramadan or, like, you know, making the Hajj, you have, like, your Eid Adha. And we should make a big deal about that because, you know, these are important holidays and these are sacred holidays and these are sacred events. So, like, you know, we should show that to our children how sacred these events are and how how special these holidays are um, because, when they have the opportunity to get excited about their own traditions and make them cling to their own traditions, like you know, you, you'll see in kind of like non-Muslim families as the children get older, they stop really caring that much about Christmas and like okay, we get parents. But when they themselves become parents, they will carry that tradition on for their children. So, and this is something we need to give 
our kids. We need to give them that spark that, you know, Islam is living and breathing. It's not it's not just in books or it's not just in ink and paper that you know that that gathers dust on the shelf. It's is living, is breathing, it's it's a part of everything and we should be celebrating that. You know, there's no there's no harm in celebrating AIDS. You know, there's no harm in like, you know, putting up some lights and like a little bit of decorations or um you know, you can make your own decorations. Like, um, I mean, some of my friends, what they've done with their kids is they've made their own decorations, their own kind of Ramadan decorations. And it's that activity with the kids where you get them involved and then they feel special because when they see their counterparts in school and how special they feel because, you know, with non-Muslim kids, they get to make decorations and Christmas cards and stuff. And they're kind of left like, well, we don't have anything. And, you know, that impacts greatly on a child. Absolutely. Especially, especially if you're in such a mixed environment. So we as Muslims, it's a duty for us as like older Muslims or teachers or parents to make these occasions special for their children and the children that they teach. Absolutely. Jazakallah khair, Ustada Khadija, for uh, all your words of wisdom. Uh, we've been speaking to um, Ustada Khadija about Islamic education. We've covered a number of different topics, uh, how to raise children, how to set a good example yourselves as parents when it comes to prayer and accessing the Qur'an. And we've also talked about, uh, in general, just about how learning the Qur'an at any age is something which uh, we should continue to try and do. Uh, and we've talked about children that maybe are slower than others in terms of learning the deen and have learning difficulties and how to make sure that you accommodate for them as well. Um, so, mashallah, we've covered a lot of uh, different topics. So thank you so much for taking part uh, in the Ask the Sheikha program. And we'd be honoured if you could maybe uh, come back and uh, speak to us again on another show, inshallah, um, sometime during this month, inshallah. Um, so for now, thank you for listening. That was the Ask the Sheikha program. Uh, again, Monday to Thursday, 6 to 7 p.m. And we will be continuing. Uh, up until Thursday, and then we have the Urdu version, which comes out from Fridays to Sundays. Uh, but Jazakallah Khair again for taking part. And we'll... Okay, salam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Radio Ramadan 365 podcasts. Make sure to visit our Radio Ramadan website at rr365.co.uk to access all of our podcasts. Stay tuned on our social channels for future content. 